this is a cool time. I'm leaning into it and doing my thing and I feel supported. And I hope that everyone listening to this also finds the circles that support them because your ideas are probably really freaking cool and you should share them with the world. Welcome to the Genius Women Podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisuk, an award-winning travel photographer and writer with work in some incredible publications like National Geographic, Farm Magazine, and more. And this year, you'll see my name in places like Condé Nast Traveler. I'm on a mission to help other women who want to grow their travel storytelling careers go after their dreams while feeling supported, worthy, and bold. If you're ready to ditch your fear and doubt to the side, step into your brilliance and take action on your dreams, you're in the right place. Let's go. Alex Reynolds is a travel photographer, writer, and solo female backpacker who's been on the road since 2016. You might have seen her work on Instagram under the Lost with Purpose handle, where she tells stories about her travels in Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, South India, and more. I've been following Alex for what feels like many years now, and I was thrilled to sit down with her recently to talk all things travel, blogging, making money while traveling, what success looks like in the space, empowering women, as well as our evolution as travel storytellers and content creators when it comes to our roles in perpetuating colonialist stereotypes that plague travel media. We had a really great conversation that took us to many unexpected places. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, Alex, to our podcast. I am very excited to have you here on our show today. Hi, Yulia. Thank you for having me. As I was telling you uh, before we started recording, I've been admiring you from afar for several years now, it feels like. So really excited that we now get to connect in person and talk about stuff. First of all, let's talk about the image that you've shared with me that is one of your favorite images that you've captured. This image, when I look at it, is so full of joy. And for our listeners, we're going to link to it in our show notes. But tell us, what do you love about it the most? And what is the story behind this image? So I took this photo at the Mela Cheragan in Lahore in Pakistan. And the Mela Cheragan is like a festival celebrating the death of a Sufi saint, but it's kind of like a fusion of Islamic tradition and Hindu tradition because it's said that a Sufi saint, an Islamic Sufi saint and friend or maybe lover were buried together at this shrine. And so it's celebrating both of them. And so it's this massive like three-day festival at this shrine and It actually used to be celebrated across other parts of the country or across other parts of Lahore as well and Punjab, but it's kind of shrunk in recent years. And so it's all concentrated at this little shrine on the outskirts of Lahore. And it's overwhelming at first because like many festivals in South Asia, it's a lot of men gathered together in very tight spaces. And there's some women during the day, not really any at night sometimes. And so as a woman to be navigating that space, it's kind of overwhelming. It can be intimidating and you can feel quite guarded a lot of the time. But the woman in the photo is, I mean, maybe or maybe isn't what people call Malangs. They're kind of like wandering holy people. They kind of bounce between shrines, sometimes festivals, and often play music or dance or sometimes just ask for donations, basically. Whether or not she was officially one, I don't know, because sometimes people just pretend for festivals. But regardless of what her official identification is, she was very welcoming. Like she saw me, a lone woman in the crowd of men, and was just like, We didn't share a language, but she just made eye contact and she was smiling at me and invited me to come sit with her. And even though we were surrounded by this huge wall of men, she like made sure that I could come through and she and another one of the men sitting with her made space for me. And we didn't share a language. I've learned some Urdu, which is one of the main languages of Pakistan, but not very much. And she knew some Urdu, but not very much. She spoke Punjabi. So we had like stilted conversations, but enough to really just like kind of acknowledge, hey, we are both women in this space. It's a little uncomfortable, but also, hey, we're here, right? And it's already quite 
unusual to be a woman in that space. And then for women to dance in public like that is also extremely unusual. And so to see that woman getting up in front of a crowd and like spinning and drawing attention to herself and just dancing and having that look of like content bliss on her face was really just, it's another world. Sometimes it doesn't seem like something like that is possible in Pakistan, but in that moment it was. And to just have that connection and see such like a beautiful woman at the center of it all and unafraid to just express herself like that and just lose herself in that moment was a privilege for me to be able to sit there and have that connection with her for the afternoon and the evening. And so I have a lot of photos from that moment, but the one that I shared with you is the one that really captures like her moment of just joy and contentedness and the smile on her face. And even though the festival itself can be quite like overwhelming and chaotic at times, just from how much stuff is happening all at once. When I look at her face, I feel this sense of like calm and it's like everything else is kind of blanked out and I really just hone in on her and the joy that she's feeling. And so even now when I look at that photo, I smile and also think of our really crappy stilted conversation, but it brings a joy, it brings a smile to my face every time, even now. That's a beautiful story. And yeah, that bliss that you talked about, I, I really see it in her face and in just in the whole image. It's such a beautiful uh, moment captured. So. You've traveled through Pakistan extensively, and we're going to get into that a little bit later. But tell us about how you're navigating some of that with, you know, what you just said, like lots of spaces crowded with men where women are usually sort of not drawing attention to themselves. How did you navigate all of that as a solo traveler in that space? I've figured out how to do it with time. There's been a lot of trial and error. I mean, at first, I had no idea what I was doing. The first time I visited, I did have a boyfriend at the time. And so that helped to deflect some of the intimidation. But I mean, I left him at some point a few years back. And so I had to learn to navigate these very patriarchal spaces on my own. And at first, I was very like timid and kind of wary of other people, but then eventually I learned that no matter what I do, I'm going to get attention regardless. So I might as well just go ahead and do it. And it's kind of complex in some ways because as an outsider, I have a lot of privilege of being a foreign woman. I am not held to the same kind of moral standards as much as local women would be. So if I break norms, People just kind of stare at me, sometimes tell me off, but generally I can get, just leave, um, whereas local women can't. But yeah, no matter what you do, someone is going to be offended. Someone is not going to really mind. And so I decided to just go for it. And as far as harassment goes, it does happen. I'm not going to lie. It happens quite often. I've had people grab me and follow me and harass me digitally because they managed to connect with me there. But I just am stubborn and refuse to let people intimidate me and stop me from traveling. I built up a bit of a steel wall after a few years, and so now it doesn't bother me as much. The joy that I get from going out and just experiencing these things, good and bad, is much more significant than any of the distress that's caused me by being a strange outsider like that. Yes. Oh my gosh, I can relate to that so much. And you know, for me, and I wonder if you feel the same way too, I almost thrive is not the right word, but I do well when I'm the outsider, meaning like, I don't know, like I'm so used to being the outsider that it doesn't, it doesn't phase me. Does that make sense? There's something liberating about it just because you are so different. What do you have to lose? Like you are going to be strange regardless. And so you're in a kind of more interesting position because of it, because you can like kind of observe from the outside, but also if you have to, you can leave. And just the standards aren't quite the same for an outsider. So like you can kind of sometimes dictate what is and is not okay for you. That sounds a bit like controlling, but yeah, I don't know. I understand what you mean. Like I also just thrive from being put into challenging situations. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a daredevil is not the right word, but I definitely really enjoy it when everything goes wrong. Yeah. Although you know what this just made me think about this sort of path that we're walking down is that me thriving as an outsider is an example of my privilege, actually, because if an outsider who is, let's say, coming to the States or in Europe, they're probably not thriving in that situation, right? They're probably being 
very disadvantaged. And so, yeah, just one more way in which the privilege of being a Western outsider shows up in the world. It's very true, because I mean, both of us are from the West. And so no matter what we do, we're still often perceived as being more untouchable or more powerful or just more in the right, regardless of what we do. People are not going to be scrutinizing us as much as local people or people from less privileged countries. And so it is definitely a kind of privilege just for us. Like you traveled a lot in Jordan and the Middle East in general. And so I imagine you understand what it's like to go places where women may or may not go and just be like, I am the outsider and I can do whatever I want. Ha 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 ha. So... Yeah, for sure. Although there's also a duality in that because I actually come from the East, right? I'm originally, I grew up in the East. I'm now in the West. I have both feet in these two different worlds. I think though, like having that kind of intersectional experience makes you a better observer and storyteller. Or at least that's what I tell myself anyway. <laughs> um, but just being at that intersection of cultures and privileges and powers does make it more interesting because you can kind of straddle and better understand both sides of a picture. I have the same. I'm from the West, but my mother is from the Philippines and my father is English. So I'm like colonizer and colonized. <laughs> and so I have a little bit of both worlds. And I think it makes you much more aware of these things because of it. I agree. Yeah, so, so well said. So speaking of travel, you've been traveling since 2016, at least, and you've been to many destinations that an average traveler wouldn't necessarily go to, like Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan. Tell us a little bit about how you got the travel bug and how you one day decided that this will be what you're going to do with your life. So... I traveled a lot when I was younger. My parents are just very interested in travel. And so they were very good about doing what they could to help my brother and I go places when we were younger. My father was a professor, so we could sometimes go with him on his trips if he was speaking somewhere. Like once a year, we'd go somewhere far away. And so that was kind of my upbringing. And as I got older, I was like, yeah, like I really want to do this more how do I do this more? I have no idea, but I like it. And no one in my life traveled very extensively. It's all like typical American. We go on vacation for two weeks and then we come back. And ideally that's in the US or to like Cancun. And so in my university, I did a study abroad program and I was supposed to go to Russia because I was actually studying Russian as a minor. Didn't do that. I was like, I don't actually want to go to Russia. I want to go to Asia because I've been there like a few times and it was pretty cool every country that I went to. So I'm going to go there. And then very simplistic, impulsive me was like, okay, computer science, Asia, because that was my major. And I literally just Googled like computer science, Asia. That was too broad. So I was thinking, what food do I like? Thai food study abroad, Thailand, found a program, had no idea what I was getting into, just like signed up. And I ended up in Thailand. It was fine in the end, but it was nothing at all like what I expected. It was actually one of the more prestigious schools in Thailand, and all of the students were extremely wealthy. And so it was really intimidating. Kids were driving like Porsches and Ferraris to school, and I was just way out of my league. So I ended up in Thailand, and I did a little bit of traveling while I was there and traveled more after the semester was done. And it was really there where I was first exposed to the idea of long-term travel, because I just... I had no idea that people traveled for more than two weeks at a time until I met all the Europeans traveling around. And they're like, oh, yeah, like, how long are you going for? Oh, yeah, I'm traveling for like two years now. What? You can do that? I want to do that. <laughs> and so I didn't do it right away. I fell in love with a boy. And so I moved to the Netherlands to be with him after university. And he was very rational. He was like, yeah, you can travel, but like you need money and you need to plan this stuff. And I said, okay. That makes sense. I will do that. And so three years down the line in the Netherlands, I had saved up enough money for what I thought would be a year. And I was in the process of doing the millennial sell all your stuff and travel the world. I didn't really know that was a thing at the time. And then while I was Googling like places for my trip, I learned about travel blogging around that time. And so then I was like, okay, that's interesting. Like, I could try that. I like design and photography and I hate writing, but I can learn how to do that. <laughs> and so I kind of 
decided that I would make a website where I would start filling in all the information that like I was not finding when researching my trip. And so that turned out to be very useful for many people. Surprise, surprise. And so that's how I kind of got into covering more of these countries that are less traveled to and that are lacking and like more information about how to travel there. I should add a disclaimer. I'm not traveling there for the blog. I kind of go where I feel like it and then blog about it afterwards. But obviously on my blog, I'm going to be covering a lot of countries that less people are going to just because that's where the information need is. If I go to say Thailand, everyone said something about Thailand. (laughs) I don't need to add too much more. And so I started doing that. And because of the blog and some freelance work I was doing, my money didn't run out when I thought it would. And so I was at the time, I was just traveling over land because that's the cheapest and most fun way to travel. And it just kind of happened. It wasn't that I was trying to go out and find like the most obscure countries ever. It was just, I wanted to go somewhere that I didn't know much about. And so my then boyfriend and I started in Georgia and went to Iran and then Pakistan. And it was like really Iran and Pakistan where it was, I realized that one, people giving you travel advice who have never been to a country really don't know anything. <laughs> and two, travel in places that are supposedly off limits might be more possible than you'd think. And so just all of Central Asia and South Asia, I knew very little about and everything I was experiencing was very exciting and just piqued my curiosity no matter where I went. And so I just kind of hung around. I liked it. It was manageable to travel around. It didn't break my bank account, which is very important. Here I am years later, literally years later, um, still traveling to those countries, still writing about those countries, just kind of click. Yeah. And I think what you said at the beginning there was really important is that you created something because you couldn't find that information online already. So I think that's important, right? When somebody's creating a project or something, it's like understanding that there needs to be a need for that, right? If you were starting a blog on France, for example, well, that's great. There's a lot of information on France. So what can you offer that's going to be different from what's already out there, which is probably, yeah, one of the reasons why your blog took off in the way that it did. But what would you say to someone who is planning on starting a blog today in 2021, right? The landscape is quite different even from five years ago. So what would you tell somebody who is thinking about that? One of the things that I always say to people is in this line, it's what do you have to offer that other people haven't done well already? So like you said, if you go to France, everything is covered in France. Everyone has been writing about France in every language for all of like internet existence and beyond internet existence. But for example, like other countries may or may not have things that can be covered They can be covered. They may not have everything covered online. And also there are different perspectives that you can cover something with. So like up until this point, a lot of travelers that you and I and listeners to this might know are usually male, often old, always Western and also white. And so if you're anything aside from that, you're already bringing an interesting perspective to the table. And then there's all the different kinds of like niches of travel that you can go into. Some people are interested in like specific kinds of accommodation, like seeking out more sustainable guest houses or looking for more local experiences that people can engage with or like supporting more women oriented travel or businesses. And so there's a lot of very specific things that people can tap into that others haven't written about already. And so I think finding things that have not been covered is very, very important. And a lot of people don't think about that. They just jump in and they're like, okay, yes, I have top 10 places to visit in Bangkok. Let's go. And it's like, no one cares about that. I'm sorry. That's been done. It doesn't matter. But like, if you can tell me about 10 women-owned cafes in Bangkok that you can support, that could be a thing. And so just looking for that unique angle, I think, is something that a lot of newer content creators overlook. Yeah, I love that. I love that advice, Alex. And that's what I talk about when it comes to pitching your stories to magazines, right? It's that same idea, the top 10 beaches in Thailand, it's been done. Like nobody wants to see that for sure. But what is your unique perspective that you're bringing to that story? 
So in one of your posts on your site, you mentioned that travel blogging alone likely will not make you rich. And granted, I think that post was from 2018 and perhaps things have changed. But what I would like to talk about is some of those misconceptions of a rich travel blogger and demystify that whole process of making money while traveling. And your post, which we're going to link to in the show notes, outlines a lot of that very well. I loved reading that post. But yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because I think people often confuse also, you know, these 500,000 follower accounts on Instagram who are charging, I don't know, $10,000 a post and are staying in Maldives and all these luxury resorts. That is not an experience of every single travel blogger or content creator or journalist out there. Not all of them want that either. I mean, I don't want that. And so... Very good point. Yeah. Yeah, there's like this perception that if you succeed in travel blogging, you're just going to be eating floating breakfasts and petting giraffes and just like lounging in swimwear on beaches all day, ideally the Maldives. And that could be the case for some people, but for most people, it isn't. In my own experience, I struggled to make a livable wage for the West with just blogging. Part of that is me being impulsive and chasing a lot of different things at once. But part of that is also having ethics. It actually causes problems in my business because a lot of people make money, like bloggers make the majority of their money from marketing. That is essentially what a blogger is. You are marketing a service or a place or whatever, a product. And so if you're willing to just go out and go on press trip after press trip and sacrifice all of your independence and autonomy, then you probably can make a good living wage from being a blogger, but you are going to be basically shuttled from tour to tour a lot of the time. And so some people like that. I personally don't and would rather just be poor (laughs) than do that. And also the same applies to marketing things or marketing more specific products or services. I personally am not super comfortable advertising constantly. If you look at the bloggers who are most successful, like financially speaking, they are advertising stuff constantly, day in, day out, buy teas, buy swimwear, buy this plane ticket, buy whatever. And so there's very little, it doesn't feel as authentic. It doesn't feel as wholesome. And if it just feels very like plastic and commercial. And so if you're willing to do that and you find the benefits of that lifestyle outweigh the negatives of just becoming like a constant marketing funnel, that's fine. You can do that. I would rather not. So I am not as financially successful. Not to say that it's impossible. It's more just a matter of your preference. You can also make money through advertising, which is a little bit less directly salesy. And then if you just have a lot of traffic from the West specifically, you can make money through advertising and just having a lot of traffic to your blog or selling occasional posts on a really huge social media account and just making sure that when you do sell a product, it's something you actually believe in. So it's not to say that it's impossible to make a lot of money. It's just very rare and might require more sacrifices or be less fun than you think it is. And so I've been lucky in that I still have had cool opportunities come to me. But for every interesting opportunity that I actually agree to, I probably turned down like hundreds more because just I don't believe in the product. I don't want to be a spokesperson for this kind of thing. I don't want to post pictures of like watches or whatever it is that people post now. (laughs) Yeah, this is not the way to make millions. You could, but it's unlikely. And there is much more efficient ways to make a lot of money in this world. Yes. And what I want to point attention to what you said earlier, that your approach might not be the way to be financially successful, but I would actually like to even suggest that what is financial success, right? I think it goes back to what is important to you and what do you need to feel happy in your life? And for somebody, it means making thousands, if not millions, and being in the Maldives all the time. For someone, it means being independent, telling your stories, traveling all the time, and being able to have food and accommodations, place to sleep. That is already financial success in my book, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of my measurement also. I wasn't making a spectacular amount pre-pandemic, 
but it was enough to sustain my travels. I could travel and I wasn't watching my bank account decline constantly. So I had the freedom to go where I wanted in a lot of parts of the world. I was exposed to a lot of cool things. I could pick opportunities if I gelled with them. And so I wasn't putting money into a savings account, but I'm also young. I'm not super concerned about that yet. And so I was happy. I'm cool with making like a thousand or 2000 a month, if even, as long as I'm living the lifestyle that I want, because a lot of people just focus on making as much money as possible and then figuring out what they want. Except I know that I like travel and I know that I would be spending the money on travel. So if I just make enough money to survive while traveling, then I already have what I want. The money is just a tool to get what I want. Exactly. One of the things that I recommend too is figure out how much you actually need every month. And you might be surprised that, like you said earlier, you know, this Western lifestyle that we have, it draws us into this never-ending race where we have to earn more and more and more to just to keep up and, you know, the mortgage and all the expenses and the credit cards. But at the end of the day... When you think about just what you actually just need to be able to go on with your day, it's not that much. And all of a sudden, this lifestyle becomes much more feasible than you ever thought, you know? Yeah, exactly. You don't have to have a huge house in London somewhere if that's not what's going to bring you joy. For some people, yes. A lot of people, not. So why bother working towards it? Love it, Alex. Hey friends, I'm interrupting myself here for a quick second to let you know that I've created a brand new resource just for you. If you're enjoying listening to this podcast and want to start pitching your travel stories, go to geniuswomen.com pitch to get access to my private pop-up podcast of three short episodes that reveal the secrets of successful pitching. That's geniuswomen.com p-i-t-c-h. Okay, back to this episode. So in that same post that we just touched, you know, discussed a little bit, at the end of that post, you said something like, be patient because Rome wasn't built in a day. And I love that so much because I see that so often that, you know, people expect quick results and they get so discouraged when they don't see those quick instant results. And what I want to really drive home through the podcast, through everything that I'm doing is that, man, it takes really long time to build something and to start seeing the results of your work even. Yeah. A lot of people like in blogging and influencing specifically, a lot of people jump in, they make a website and they're like, okay, when can I get the free hotel stays? And it's like, well, what value do you have to offer to other people? Nothing right now. So be patient. With my own blog, I think it was probably a year or two before I started actually making money through the blog. I was just doing it because I cared about sharing information and I enjoyed it. And so, yeah, that's years of a lot, a lot of hours on the computer, like writing and designing and coding and editing photos. And just that's a lot of time and not a lot of money. Even now, when I make more money from it, it's still a terrible balance between time in and money out. But that's okay if that's what it takes to get to the point that you're comfortable with. So be it. So yeah, I mean, no matter where you look, anyone who's successful took time to get there. You might not see it, but it always takes time, whether that be learning a skill when they were a kid or practicing behind the scenes, or if they're just like a really beautiful person who gets money from being a very beautiful person, they probably still exercise like day in and day out and diet all the time to stay as like conventionally beautiful as they are. So no matter where you look, if someone is succeeding, it takes time. Yeah. Just the other day, I posted uh, on Instagram, my overnight success story was six years in the making, which is kind of that concept, right? It takes time. Yeah. And sometimes it just takes like a break, right? There might have been like a pivotal point in your own career where finally someone noticed that you were doing something and then things started to get better. Um, and so I think a lot of people experience that where like they're slaving for forever and then finally someone somehow sees something and then things pick up from there. It usually happens if you're persistent and really dedicated to what you're doing and are really trying to learn and grow. I do think it will happen at some point for everyone. Oh, I love that you said that, Alex. I just love that you said that because that's exactly what I always say to everyone who comes to me with this question of like, how do I start getting my stories published? How do I get on this path? I tell them, 
you do this, you pitch, you keep doing this, you keep approaching publications, you keep creating, eventually it will happen. Like I have zero doubt in my head that eventually it will happen, but you have to be persistent. And that's what a lot of people are not willing to realize that the road, it takes time and it takes persistency and commitment to get there. Yeah, I know exactly. I also pitched a lot more publications in the beginning for SEO purposes for my blog. And it was just so overwhelming to me to have to pitch all the time. And I like quickly got deterred by it. But now at this point, people come to me asking for articles. Actually, I haven't pitched anything in years. And people still come to me with articles just because I was consistent and present in other spaces as well. So somehow it happens. Yeah, no, absolutely. So in your blog uh, that again we're going to link to it and for our listeners definitely go check it out what I've also noticed is that there's been an evolution of how you even approach travel and your own understanding of what it means to be a traveler in 2021 which was really cool to see because I think that's something that a lot of us are going through that evolution. And I've definitely also, like if I look at some of my earlier work, right now I cringe sometimes. I really said that? That sounds horrible. <laughs> oh my God, that was me. I hope no one sees this ever again. <laughs> yes, I know the feeling well. <laughs> but it's cool to see that. And, you know, there's sort of one part of it, which is about your own work and how you can see the progress that you've made with your work, which is cool to see. But the other part of it is evolution in the way you think, which has been really amazing to see. So talk to us a little bit about that. What does it look like for you now uh, when you go to some of these places and think about how you impact those places as a traveler. Yeah. So when I first started traveling, I was like all of us, I think. We go out, we're just amazed by everything. We don't really think so much. It's like, okay, I see a thing. This is exciting. On to the next thing. Um, and so I kept traveling. And the more you see, the more you start to notice the little details. And so it was really like entering South Asia with, like I said, I had a boyfriend, he was white, he was tall, he was like nice blonde-ish European. And so you start to think about it a little bit because you see how well he's treated. Sometimes compared to me, it was significantly better. Um, and so you see this kind of discrepancy in how certain people are treated. And so that got me thinking a little bit about just the privilege of being an outsider. And so we carried on. Eventually we split. So I was traveling alone. And then, then I noticed a really significant difference in how people were interacting with me. People were much less forward in their hospitality. They were much more suspicious and a little like they're very critical sometimes. And so that's when I really started thinking about like race and travel and just how our appearance affects how people perceive us or assume that we are. And so that got me thinking on the race aspect of it. And then sometime a few years into my traveling journey, I started being exposed to like concepts, like discussions about colonialism and Orientalism. Um, there's one particular podcast, Sacred Footsteps, like hats off to them. They're the coolest. They brought me up in one of their podcasts. They used me as a good example of how to do travel blogging. So whew, I was not on the fire. But so they mentioned me in their podcast. And so I listened to that. And that was, I kind of dived into their content. And they talk about Orientalist representations of the East quite extensively in their work. And so that was my first exposure to that kind of discussion. And it was, I looked at it and was like, wow, this is everywhere. <laughs> Travel media, like, holy shit. Once you see it, you cannot unsee it. Yeah, exactly. Like once you see it, it's everywhere. But because we're kind of raised in certain societies where this is just normal or it's brushed under the table and because the places where we learn are so homogenous, we don't really think about it as much until we're like slapped in the face with it. And then you realize it's everywhere, or at least hopefully you realize that it's quite pervasive. And so that was really like a turning point, like because of them and kind of being brought into that conversation that I wasn't even aware was happening. I started to read a lot more and just realized how problematic all of this is and how I am contributing to it or could be contributing to it with my own work 
And it was around the same time, this is like a slight tangent, but around the same time I had published a blog about this. It's a valley in Pakistan. Not so many people were going there at the time. I went there, I wrote a blog about it. And then that summer, I had so many people sending me selfies being like, hey, we're here because of your blog. And that was when I really had, oh my gosh, people like, listen, a lot of people are listening. Hi, I'm being held accountable for my words now. <laughs> like, I need to be more conscious about what I share if people are actually looking. And so those two things happened around the same time. And that really just motivated me to be much more critical about how I'm interacting with people when I'm traveling, how I represent people when I'm traveling, and whether or not I should even be writing about places in the first place. And so that's kind of been building over time. And with the pandemic and just everything stopping, like you all know, <laughs> we've all had a lot of time to sit and reflect on our own lifestyle and our choices and just what the heck we're doing in this world. And so a lot of that time for me has been dedicated to like reading more deeply about stuff I was otherwise not allocating enough time to and really just like reflecting on all my past work and looking at it with the new lens, like my more educated lens now. And so in my own work, I saw all kinds of awful things and I saw it in other people's work in the pandemic and before. As I became a more established blogger, I was being exposed to more influencers just from like working with them and influencers all kind of like congregate at some point or another. And I realized when I met some of these people that there are a lot of, <laughs> I'll be nice, there are a lot of very insensitive influencers in this world and they're ignorant and that's one thing. Ignorance is manageable, but there are a lot of people who are very defensive about their ignorance and are really unwilling to listen to criticism and adjust and respond to it and learn from it. People have millions of followers and they're like aggressively sometimes promoting these negative, harmful stereotypes of like, this country is all just uncivilized people in slums and this place, like all of Africa is just one safari that's there just for like beautiful women to pose in safari jeeps and talk about local people like they're primitive animals. And like, yeah, it's scary, actually. And the more you look into kind of colonial practices from a hundred years ago, or even now, actually, you see all the similarities. And especially right now, the thing that I'm grappling with is blogging inherently colonial. Because if you think about the digital, like the internet as land, basically, and so every country has its own claim to a certain part of the internet, but as bloggers or photographers or like Instagrammers or whatever, YouTubers, like when we go in, we make content about a place and because some of us have a such powerful reach already and because we're so established, we are basically carving out our own little space regarding that country or that area and saying like, we are the experts, this is the thing and like, you must see it through our lens. And so I've started thinking about just like the way we represent ourselves on the internet as like digital colonialism and now my hands are like totally tied. I've like canceled myself in my mind. It's like, oh, I don't know how to do this without contributing to these kinds of issues. Um, and so that's something I'm still grappling with, like whether I can continue doing things as I was before in any way, or if it would be better to just back off and choose a less like problematic career. I don't have the answers now, but that's kind of where my evolution has brought me to. And for anyone who's listening to this and is having a like, oh shit, can I do this moment? Um, on the flip side, I think that travel media does need more people who are willing to have this critical reflection and respond to it and really try to demonstrate how to be more responsible about writing or photography or whatever, because if every responsible person ultimately backs out because they just can't justify it anymore, then all that's left is all of these ignorant, irresponsible people telling everyone to like go jump around in Dubai in a bikini and like go to the Maldives and just assume it's like all your beach resort or like go to countries and try to pay nothing. So yeah, on the one hand, I'm not sure if it can be ethical, but on the other hand, I see the need for more ethics, even if it's imperfect. 
Yeah. Oh, very critical and crucial conversation, Alex. And and I love that we sort of are getting into this space because I've also exactly that same struggle that you're talking about. I've also thought about it a lot in the past few years, because every time I go on a media trip, I see all those horrible behaviors that my peers are engaging in. And now I'm more critical and more aware, but I'm like, I'm still in this industry and I'm still like, you know, participating in it and sort of the way I'm where I'm ending up with it I think is for me personally approaching places and stories and people with humility and not answering them as an expert ever step one that I think is already placing you on the right path right because I think that's where it becomes problematic right you're like I've been here for five or like three days even and I'm an expert all of a sudden and then sort of the way I see myself now is a medium really a medium and thinking that when I go to some of these places I want to partner with the people there and even ask their permission like for example when I did the Bedouin story in Jordan You know, I didn't just sort of roll into their community and said, hey, here I am to take your pictures, (laughs) you know? It was years of building trust and me becoming part of their community. And then when I had the idea to do this, I actually asked them, hey, would you be interested, open to doing the story together? You know, sort of, I think that's sort of where I see my own work go into. But I love what you said about if all the critically thinking people leave... (laughs) Who's going to stay and and continue this conversation, right? Exactly. Yeah, sometimes I just want to throw my phone and laptop out the window and just say, screw this. I'm going to go just like work on a farm somewhere and just leave this. But just there's so few critical voices in the industry, like in all of the travel industry, there's not enough critical voices. And so I agree, like kind of partnering with people and working to like share stories together or amplify people who are otherwise being overlooked, I think is where privileged outsiders can fit in. Like we have the privilege of connections and experience and network. We can give our privileges to other people and use them to support other people and better amplify them. The tricky part is just, it's easy to overdo that too. It's easy to go in and be savory. So finding the kind of balance is the trick. So I think you and I are both just figuring out how we can navigate these spaces while doing what we love without actually harming other people. Yeah. But I, I have to say, Alex, don't leave travel media because we need you. Uh, I don't know. See, I don't know. Maybe yes, no. And, you know, well, just sort of to uh, direct our listeners to more resources about what Alex just shared with us. So the podcast that she mentioned is called uh, Sacred Foodsteps, and we're going to link to it and link to Alex's episode with Sacred Foodsteps. So you can check it out. I also want to link to another video, which I've came across several years ago, which is talking about, it's an Al Jazeera video that is using Edward Said's writings on colonialism and Orientalism and putting it into like a very accessible video format. Oh, it's a brilliant video too. And Edward Said is uh, a Palestinian um, author who wrote a lot about colonialism and Orientalism. So we'll link to that as well. It's Again, it's one of those things that once you see it, you just, you cannot unsee it and you see it everywhere. And it's kind of shocking how widespread it is. And lastly, Alex and several of her collaborators recently started this amazing account on Instagram called Decolonizing Travel. And they have done already just some incredible coverage on some of these issues that we talked about. So we're going to link to that as well. So you guys can go and check it out. Yeah, it's a new baby account. So please, by all means, check it out. Follow us. Comment on things if you're feeling particularly motivated or don't just follow us. Awesome. Awesome. Goodness. I keep saying this now, but I feel like an hour conversation is not enough because I'm just now like, okay, I want to talk to you about so much more and so many more things that that this conversation has opened. But before we sort of start wrapping up, what I wanted to ask you is tell us uh, a little bit about some of the women that you've met on your travels that have inspired you, because we sort of touched on it a little bit in the beginning that, you know, a lot of your travels you've been doing as a solo uh, solo traveler and in a lot of the places you go, you know, it's sort of uh, very, let's say, male 
what male dominated places, very patriarchal places. Yeah. So tell us about some of the women that you've met that have inspired you. Yeah. In terms of inspiring women, I've met in my travels a lot, like simultaneously a lot and not enough. I don't meet enough women in my travels, period. But some people, they come to mind, like the first woman would have to be my friend and business partner in Pakistan. Her name is Anika. And despite culture dictating that women don't travel alone or don't travel so much and just don't do things on their own period, she's traveled all over the country, both with friends and others. And she started her own travel company, offering tours throughout Pakistan. And that's just not something that's done. (laughs) Like Pakistan's hospitality industry is 3% female. And I don't know of any other like officially registered tour company run by a woman. So she's pretty badass. And yeah, we met while traveling and we decided to start running women's tours together in Pakistan. And for our research, we went up north to the mountains and we were just like, okay, we're just going to go to different places and see what's cool. And then I had a motorbike just learned how to motorbike and a friend's company offered to loan me one for a bit and I had never driven on mountain roads before I had never driven on like these little dirt roads by cliffs before and I was like hey Anika I just drove us around and she just trusted me even though she thought we were gonna die (laughs) she trusted me and just we have had a lot of adventures together because of that and just she's like a force to be reckoned with. And I really respect her a lot. So she is super inspiring to me and also has helped me grow as a traveler. And then in terms of others, there's another woman I met, Hegel. She runs her own hostel chain of sorts in Chopanata and maybe Karakul in Kyrgyzstan. And she is also a force to be reckoned with. Like she is a business mastermind and very motivated and very energetic also. And she's just very proactive in Kyrgyzstan's tourism scene. And whenever I'm talking to her, I feel like anything is possible. And so I really respect just her drive in general a lot. And there's, in terms of just like travelers, there's one woman I know I've met her briefly a few times, but I've just been creeping on her otherwise. Her name is Marsha, and she's from Hong Kong, but has spent time in Australia and the UK. And she came from a kind of abusive background. And so she left home when she was quite young and she didn't go to university. She just hit the road and she has been freaking everywhere. She's like rented donkeys in the Wakhan corridor and cycled around multiple countries by herself and hitchhiked all over the place and just been all over the world despite not having the best upbringing and despite like the racism that she faces as an East Asian woman and just she's like not a particularly tall intimidating woman so to see like a short East Asian girl going around and not giving a damn (laughs) about what happens and just going ahead with things anyway is just super inspiring. It's really fun to meet people like that. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, you meet a lot of cool people. I could go on, but those are three who come to mind. I love that, Alex. And you know, for me personally, too, I've come to a point in my life where I'm like, I want to surround myself with amazing women. And and not even like, like, I want to surround myself, but it's like, there's so many amazing women that inspire me. And I want them in my life because I think it's so important, you know? Yeah, it gives us, I don't know, like you said, it's like we we see, they expand our horizon on what's possible, which is incredible. And the company that you mentioned, the Women's Only Tours to Pakistan, it's uh, Mad Hatter Tours, right? Yeah, we do like... We join forces to do women's tours twice a year, but Anika like has her own company, the Mad Hatters, doing trips and at any time. Awesome. So for our listeners, if Pakistan is one of the places you want to learn more about, then definitely check out Alex's tours. We'll link to it in the show notes as well to Pakistan. I would go with you in a heartbeat, Alex. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it would be fun. So again, I feel like we need to talk more because we need infinite time, but we don't have it. We only scratch the surface. Yes. As the world or some places in the world are cautiously 
getting back out there or in some cases not very cautiously what are you excited about working on now with your blog or any other projects uh, i know you said you're sort of grappling with a lot of the things that we discussed but share with us something that you're excited about right now so i am very tentatively thinking about traveling outside of europe soon last year before the pandemic and then the pandemic started but myself and Anika and two Pakistani women two more Pakistani women came together and formed an organization called Root Network and we're trying to address some of the issues with irresponsible tourism in Pakistan and so last year we just did like a covid safety training project working with hotel owners and tour guides and people in the mountains of Pakistan and soon we're going to be starting a research trip and like research and community outreach in preparation for a women's tourism project and the first step of that is we're going to be training Pakistani women as tour guides in different parts of the country and so possibly in a few weeks i might be getting on a plane to go to pakistan and go there and like document our research trip and reach out to like women in the communities and like their communities to kind of discuss the possibilities of having this training and to just kind of make people more open to the idea of women actually going out and doing work sometimes far away from home. So I'm really excited about that if a little bit nervous because yeah, the pandemic is still a thing. I am vaccinated so it helps. Yeah. Definitely. That sounds like an awesome project and we'll look out for it on your Instagram stories because I'm sure you'll be sharing about it. Amazing. So I want to close our conversation with a question that is a bit of a big question and it's the one that I always close with, but how would you start thinking about what it means to be a woman who is stepping into her brilliance today? in 2021. I think that now is a spectacular time to be a woman embracing whatever it is that drives you and gets you up in the morning and just makes you smile. Now more than ever before, there's more women in the workplace, more women doing all kinds of things from like running their own kitchens as chefs to traveling the world like we do or writing their own books or giving lectures whatever there's more women now than ever before in the workplace and there's more awareness about the need for more women and more diversity beyond gender and just this as polarized as the world can be sometimes now this is one of the best times to be a woman going out into the world and pursuing her dream conventional or not and so it's really exciting to be alive in this time and just know that no matter how crazy my ideas are it's easier than ever to find women who can agree with it and who will support you and who would be interested maybe in coming along and so just having access to all of these resources now and differing viewpoints and just support networks that are blossoming up for women in the workplace is super freaking cool. So, yeah, I think this is a great time. In short, in summary, this is a cool time. I am leaning into it and doing my thing and I feel supported and I hope that everyone listening to this also finds the circles that support them because your ideas are probably really freaking cool and you should share them with the world. Alex, I love it. I love it. It's exactly the message I bring into the world. I love it so much. Yay, we're aligned. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to close right here because this is beautiful. Thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate your time today and I enjoyed our conversation so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to other motivated women. So, thank you for having me. Thank you so much, dear listeners, for sharing an hour of your day with us today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Alex. And if so, please consider leaving us a review so that more listeners could find our show. I can't stress how important it is for us to get reviews of our podcast. It really helps us to get in front of more people who might enjoy our show. So if you've been inspired by something you heard today or in any other episode of our show, please consider leaving us your review. That is one of the best ways you can support our podcast. Thanks again so much. I'll see you next week for a very special episode that is also an experiment that I can't wait to share with you.